Welcome to the Integrated Schools Podcast. I'm Andrew, a white dad from Denver. And I'm Val, a black mom from North Carolina. And this is Finding Hope and Solidarity with Heather McGee. Are you serious? I get to talk to Heather McGee. I know. We said the last time around when we replayed her episode that you were mad you didn't get to be in conversation with her. And she agreed to come back. And we should probably tell the good people that she agreed to come back twice. (laughs) She did. She did agree to come back twice um, because the first time we had just an amazing conversation. Beautiful. It was touching. It was heartwarming. It went in all sorts of unexpected places. We were able to connect in ways that you and I haven't connected before. Yeah, and I didn't record it. Nope. Didn't record, folks. (laughs) Not any of it. Not any of it at all. So... You'll just have to believe us. You gotta trust us. It was a good conversation. If you've ever been considering joining that Patreon and throwing us a few bucks each month to help with our production, um, <laughs> there, there you go. You could have heard the first conversation. That's right. That's right. But she agreed to come back, and we had an even more meaningful conversation. I think. Yes, which was very gracious of her uh, in her busy schedule to come back. And absolutely, she may be the hardest working woman in the business because she promotes her stuff all over the place, and she's out promoting now the podcast version of The Some of Us, which is a whole new set of stories. She went back and revisited a couple of the old stories, but a whole bunch of new stories, um, mostly focused on this idea of cross-racial solidarity and the solidarity dividends, which was one of the themes of the book, The Some of Us. You know, this week I was in Chicago doing some facilitation around some cross-racial dialogue And someone in the audience, a white woman, said, I was just listening to Heather McGee's podcast. And I didn't want to give it away. I was like, don't don't say anything. I'm so excited. Yep. (laughs) So people are out there listening and really appreciating the work. Yeah. And we have a great conversation about it and about the power of cross-racial solidarity and what good can come of it, which um, value and I try to work on every episode here. That's right. Should we take a listen? I think we should. I'm Heather McGee. I'm the author of the book, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. And I've created a sort of spinoff of the book in audio documentary form. It's a podcast. It's also called The Sum of Us, but it it is a whole bunch of new stories of cross-racial solidarity. Yes, the podcast is, is great. It's so nice to hear the voices of the people that you're talking to and, you know, feel like you are in those locations. Can you talk a little bit about why a podcast, after the success of the book, why go back and find new stories to tell, but in this this new medium? Well, so the three big concepts in the book, The Sum of Us, are the zero-sum lie of racial hierarchy, the idea that progress for people of color necessarily has to come at white folks' expense. The second is the idea of the drained pool and drained pool politics, which is basically when white people are encouraged to divest from and, in fact, maybe even destroy public goods simply because they have to share them with people of color. Obviously, very relevant to the context of integrated schools. Mm -hmm. But then the third concept is a hopeful one, and it's the idea of the solidarity dividend. The idea of gains that we can unlock, but only when we come together across lines of race. And for many readers of the book in 2021 and 2022, the solidarity dividend was the idea that they wanted to hear more about. They wanted to know, is it really possible? 
Where is this happening? What does it take? And I intellectually was very interested in that. I'm a solutions-oriented person. And the sum of us is very much a diagnosis of how we got here. And I think many people thought a hopeful way forward, but I wanted sort of a little more rigor and a little more evidence about the hopeful way forward. Mm. So that was sort of intellectually why I wanted to go back and why I felt like there would be an audience for the idea of a podcast that was exclusively focused on solidarity dividends. And then just emotionally, I wanted the experience of going back on the road and tapping into that hope that I always feel when I'm talking to everyday Americans about how they're trying to make a better America. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious just about in your interviews, are you finding that a certain group of people, whether it's the ones that are most impacted by, say, an oppression or a struggle, who are reaching out to create this solidarity? Or is it kind of all over hmm. the place? Like, what have you noticed? That's a good question. So, I mean, the idea of solidarity first, right, is that you are willing to take on a fight that is not necessarily squarely your own, Mm -hmm. right? Maybe you're impacted by it. And of course, the sum of us argues that we're all impacted more by systemic racism and unjust systems than we often think at, at first blush. But, you know, the core idea of solidarity is I'm going to stand with you even though I am not you, right? Mm -hmm. Your fight is my fight. No one should fight alone. So in the Some of Us podcast, as I've really explored more examples of cross-racial solidarity, it's, you know, it's been a mix. There have been some really nice times when I've kind of caught on tape people of color, the most impacted, saying... Well, we needed a white person Mm -hmm. in order to build power. Mm -hmm. You know, whether that's an indigenous person who's trying to stop an air raid siren that is going off daily and has been going off daily since the days when it was enforcing a sundown law saying Native people had to get off the land or else they'd be arrested or brutalized by sundown. And, you know, that's a guy named Marty who said, we're going to need a white person Mm -hmm. in this town to speak up. Right. Or it's the first episode, uh, which takes place in Memphis, Tennessee, where I actually heard about what was going on in Memphis, this amazing coalition that helped to stop a pipeline uh, that threatened the Black community and threatened the whole city's water. Because the young Black leader of the movement talked about solidarity dividends in a speech, you know, and he made the connection saying, White Memphis is not the one being targeted, but white Memphis relies on the water that is being threatened by this pipeline, right? That the pipeline itself is coming through the Black neighborhood, but we're all threatened by it. And that is why we've got to come together and have a solidarity dividend to protect clean water for all of us. So, you know, there have definitely been examples of that, and it's been really cool to sort of hear people of color name that and and talk about the trade-offs and the the reasons why they might hesitate to create a cross-racial coalition and then also speak very plainly to the power that comes with having white people in coalition. But I would say that what's been really interesting is hearing about the reasons why either a white person or a person from another community that's not the directly targeted community decides to make it their fight. Mm -hmm. Right. So in the Nevada example I gave about the sundown siren, you know, there was a white guy named Matt who was, a you know, imagine a sort of typical outdoorsman. He climbs 
mountains, he mountain bikes, he surfs, you know, and he's from Santa Cruz, California, and he goes to Nevada for recreation. And he hears about the sundown siren after Ahmaud Arbery's been killed. And when Ahmaud Arbery was killed, he, as someone who spends all his life, you know, running and exercising and all that, like, put himself right in his shoes. It's not goosebumps for that. Yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah, yeah, it's a goosebumpy podcast for sure, right? So, you know, a lot of people who run saw Ahmad's, you know, stalking and killing as as so close to home, as something they could deeply empathize with, right? Mm -hmm. That was his moment, Mm -hmm. you know, and he reflects on it and he, you know, his voice breaks and he says, you know, he was just, he was just running, you know? And there's sort of a before Ahmad and, and an after Ahmad in Matt's life, you know? And it was just interesting to hear how, even though he had never met a Washoe Native person, right, the tribe that's, you know, most impacted by this history and this sundown siren, he was like, this is unjust. I can't believe that this town won't just shut this siren off. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to do something about it. And... It gave him a sense of purpose, mm-hmm. you know, right? His life is more meaningful than it was before, for sure, mm-hmm. right? Everybody wants to be a part of something meaningful. But he also, you know, had some awkward missteps and had to learn how to deal with all of his rapidly expanding consciousness without mm-hmm. taking up the the whole room, you know, mm. when he was um, in that cross-racial space. And so... It's all it's all explored in the Some yes. of Us the podcast for sure. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you. If you can sort of like take the next step there, as he became like a better ally in that fight, what was it yeah. that helped him through the the awkward missteps, the early phases of? I love that idea of kind of like you know this like newfound consciousness that then I think as white people we have a tendency to then want to share with the whole world all the time. <laughs> in a way, like we are the first people to have thought of these things. But what the Christopher Columbus right, scenario? Right, yeah, yeah, right. What what kind of what was helpful in that? Well, I think it was his relationship with Marty, the the Washoe mm. Native person who was a lifelong California public schools educator. Mm. Right. So you know, had always been in mixed spaces was himself, had an orientation of educating, right? So I think it took a lot of grace and compassion from Marty and a lot of patience. And I think that their authentic relationship is really what was sort of the secret sauce of the coalition. And and across the episodes, that authentic cross-racial relationship that's marked by self-awareness, usually on the part of white people and Mm -hmm. grace and kind of Empathy or position taking on the part of people of color mm-hmm. is really something that, you know, became very obvious to me over the journey. And many of the podcast episodes really focus on a friendship. And in the finale, um, I reflect on, you know, what I learned from the journey. And that's definitely one of them. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious. I know you dug into the history and you're looking at these wonderful stories. What has history taught us about what makes these movements hard to sustain after, like, say, we stop the pipeline or we stop the siren? Like, Mm -hmm. what can we learn from that to keep these authentic relationships going? Yeah. I mean, so movements are not just moments of Mm. high activity, right? So you can be like, well, there was a movement in the summer of 2020, and that movement is gone. 
because I'm looking out right now, I see five apartment buildings in Brooklyn out of my windows, and there's no Black Lives Matter sign in any of them anymore, (laughs) right? So that means the movement must be gone, right? But that's not true, right? The summer of 2020 was a series of high visibility unbelievable saturation demonstrations, right? That word means something. It is a demonstration of a sentiment. That doesn't mean that that sentiment is not still there. And what I really discovered on the journey for the podcast was that sentiment has really settled into people's hearts and souls and consciousness. And so like with Matt, you know, the mountain biker, it was a before Ahmad and after Ahmad, right? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's a reason why the right wing is attacking books, ideas, thoughts, things that raise consciousness, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Education, because the right wing has co-opted the term woke from Black people. But, you know, there's something about there's when you're sleeping and then when you wake up. Absolutely. Right? And... Once someone's eyes have been opened, it's hard for them to be closed again. They can't unlearn what they learned about redlining and about school funding and about Jim Crow. That's with you forever, and it changes Mm -hmm. the way you see the world. So I think it's really important to define movements broadly in terms of time and recognize that demonstration moments are not the beginning, middle, and end Mm -hmm. of movements And also to say that what in community is important to sustain these movements is relationships and infrastructure. Mm -hmm. That's great. I'm thinking about what feels like this moment right now around public education, that there is a need for multiracial organizing and movement building to protect public education. And, And I'm wondering, is there a time now to think about that in a different way than we have in the past? I think that for a long time we had this vision of you know, kind of good schools being white schools, black and brown schools being not good schools. And the vision of kind of organizing for educational equity or justice was to allow more black and brown kids to have access. Sorry, the, the white person vision. Thank you. Of, I was of, going to you were advocating. <laughs> <laughs> I, I saw it, I saw it on your eyes. Like, in your we? eyes. Who is we? <laughs> the, 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 like, the white version vision of, you know, we're, we want... Racial equity is like, let's give more black and brown kids access to, quote unquote, good schools, which happen to be white schools. And we're in this moment where the, you know, anti-CRT movement, this, you know, sort of fear, as you were talking about, of of teaching kids actual history of opening people's eyes. You know, that what we need right now is really this like multiracial coalition for good, honest education. We had James Haslam from heel together on, you know, talking about some of the work that they're doing. Val put together this care principles, this framework for anti-racist education. There's this like need right now for really actually good education that educates everyone well. Mm-hmm. And and I'm wondering what it looks like to kind of create space for everyone to, you know, be themselves fully in schools. What does it look like to to, to organize on behalf of that in a multiracial coalition? 
You know, it's interesting because in so many ways, that organizing around social and emotional learning, around giving people the kind of character competencies that are needed to be thriving citizens in a multiracial mm-hmm. country, in a multiracial world, has been going on for the past decade. And that's why there's anything for these fear mongers to point to, right? Mm. You know, it's like they see the progress that's happening. They see that the education Uh, In many school districts, although, of course, not all or not even the majority, has been doing what good education should, which is creating critical thinkers Mm -hmm. and creating people who are ready to be strong citizens. And I say that not in a documentation way, but just in the sort of civic spirit of the way. So I think it has been happening, and I think that right now is the time to really defend it. And I think that this community, the Integrated Schools podcast community, should be at the front lines of (laughs) fighting against book bans, defending social and emotional learning, defending teachers of color, defending the very idea of public schools. Last week, I co-authored an op-ed in the New York Times. It was a whole package about what a school for. And we were invited to write on the prompt of um, schools for making citizens. Mm-hmm. And, you know, an argument that we made there was one that I make in the afterward, in the paperback version of the Some of Us book, which is these attacks on our children's freedom to learn are not just about short-term political gain and trying to scare, you know, white parents in the suburbs away from the Democratic Party, which is what they are. But it's not just about that. It's also about rendering and keeping ignorant mostly white students who are Mm -hmm. going to be going through the world not understanding why there are these obvious racial inequalities in their communities and in their country. And then they're more ripe for the picking for stereotypes and the zero-sum racial story. And if you don't think that structural racism is why something is going on, if you don't know our history, mm-hmm. you know, then it's very easy to blame the victims and to feel like you're you're so different from people who are struggling. But then the longer-term goal of the right wing in this very well-funded bankrolled effort is a real drain-the-pool strategy, right? Mm-hmm. Where they're trying to basically put public schools, which are already on the ropes because of the pandemic, because of the the crisis of low teacher pay. You know, it's remember when people were wearing red shirts in Mm -hmm. red states, right? Striking Mm -hmm. across Mm -hmm. the country for, for decent pay to educate the next generation. And so the goal is to really try to weaken and destabilize public schools where you've got overworked, underpaid teachers Mm. now having to respond to public records requests about every time that, you know, somebody mentions the word racism in school or in their library, right? right? Mm -hmm. And that's really how it's a drain-pull strategy. You've got more examples coming out right now of, you know, weird witch hunts around what's on the shelves resulting in people defunding their libraries, Mm -hmm. right? You know, I mean, it's it's classic (laughs) drain-pull politics. Yeah. This, this culture war stuff, meaning a loss of a public good for everyone. Yeah, I saw a story about that. I was like, do you understand what you just did? You defunded your own library. And for what? Mm-hmm. You don't have right. to read every book in the library. <laughs> I'm thinking about kind of the timelines a little bit for fixing things. Like, I deeply believe that the zero-sum mindset is harmful in the long run for everybody, that it's false 
in the long run that we are all better off if we are all better off that the pie is not fixed and there are there are specific sort of short term moments where there is a fixed pie where you know we've created systems that are zero sum you know i think about school funding like there is a fixed pie mm-hmm. and we should be advocating for more funding. We should be spending our time and energy going and arguing that we need to pay teachers better, that we need to fund education like it's Mm. the sort of important thing that it is. And the best case version of that is a five or 10 year change. What do I do right now? My kid only has one shot at third grade. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I think that the integrated school example, it's about redefining what your kid needs to thrive and recognizing that, I don't know, you know, in some places the the whiter schools are, are less academically rigorous than the schools right. that are more global majority schools. Um, but whatever it is, right, some evaluation you're making about what's better about the whiter school, you know, and you may be really shortchanging them in a way that is so vital to their, to their critical thinking, to their development as human beings, which is understanding who their their neighbors are and who their fellow Americans are and, and who other human beings are. So, you know, sometimes it's about redefining what the good is, right? Mm-hmm. What is the good and for whom? And then what is even the good just for you? But in terms of the timeline, yes, right? Like if we're talking about school funding, I was reminded of an example that one of my students in this class that I'm teaching at CUNY at the City University of New York, who's uh, currently the field director for California Calls, which is a statewide coalition in California, was reminding us of the fight to overturn Prop 13, which is the really absurd draconian limit on property taxes that has gutted public education in California. And that there was a coalition of, you know, lots of people to try to get something on the ballot to overturn it, and they got it on the ballot. And then when the coalition was aiming to get the increased school funding appropriated in an equitable way so that English language learners and students with disabilities would have more per pupil mm-hmm. funding, a group of like sort of, I don't know if this was the exact name of them, but it was like Moms for Education, right, pulled out mm. of the coalition and ended up opposing the, the ballot initiative. And, you know, that was a very stark example of mostly Mm. white, more well-heeled, wealthy women who thought they were doing something for the kids. And then when they realized that their kids were not going to get the most, they said, we're not for this anymore. And so I think about that, and it's like, that is a very short-term, to your point, Andrew, view of what your goal is and what the good is. Right. First of all, your kids are already coming in with thousands of dollars or more per pupil because you have that and are giving it to them in countless and, in fact, very tangible ways. Right. So it's not like your kids are actually going to get less. They're just going to get less public money, but they're going to have plenty of private money. Right. Trust and believe, (laughs) you know. And then the second is like, do, you know, these people who are obviously like these women were you know, super citizens, right? They were getting involved in a ballot initiative and they were advocates, right? right? And it's like, well, the, the, the California that they were trying to create, you would imagine, is one where they felt like they had a long-term stake. Mm-hmm. And so is it not better for the long-term stake of California, including their children and their grandchildren, for there to be 
more kids from the other side of the tracks who thrive and flourish mm-hmm. and contribute right. to the tax base down the road mm-hmm. and become the person who, you know, does the open heart surgery on your kid you right. know, and whatever right. it is. Yes. Right. Right. Yes. right. So right. it's like, it's about redefining the good yeah. in a way that's a little more long-term. It's not so short-term where you're thinking about all the resources that mm-hmm. are coming into play and you're defining what a kid needs in a more holistic way. So you were talking about creating citizens, and it took me to just my own um, family. And I come from a line of educator activists who I feel like that's where I learned my civic engagement from, right? And we always Mm. thought of education as liberation, and that's a path for us to do good for others and in the world, et cetera. I'm curious about who poured into you to Mm. get you to this point. I'd say it's very similar. You know, I think for... Many Black folks, there is a tradition of being hyper-civically involved. I was lucky enough to grow up near my grandparents, particularly on my father's side, whom I write about in The Some of Us. And, you know, my my maternal grandmother was an educator. Mm -hmm. She was in a sorority for Black educators. She was a principal of a school. My grandmother on my father's side was a high school guidance counselor. Mm -hmm. My grandfather on my father's side was a police officer who was in internal affairs and investigations in the Chicago Police Uh Department in the 1960s. (laughs) He was a bad mamma jamma. Okay. (laughs) You know, and they would have Democratic meetings, you know, in Mm -hmm. their basements and stuff. And I was really fortunate to grow up when and where I did on the south side of Chicago. And it was just this sort of sense that it it was everybody's duty in one way mm-hmm. or another to keep their hand on the wheel of progress, you know, for, for Black folks and for, for all who struggle. And and then my mother is very much the person, you know, who's holding the, the torch closest to me. She's a lifelong public servant, nonprofit professional in philanthropy and direct service. She's a, a healer, uh, really kind of one of the foremothers of the movement around social determinants of health. Uh, her name is Dr. Gail Christopher. People who've read the book will recognize her from the end of the book. And she founded and designed the framework for truth, racial healing, and transformation, which is an effort that communities can and, and are taking up to do a kind of a truth process around the racial histories and the dynamics of racial hierarchy that exist in community. If people want to learn more about that, they can go to healourcommunities.org. It's a website maintained by the Kellogg Foundation where she was when she created it. And then I would say, you know, just to keep it cross-racial for a moment, I mean, I think that in my professional life, there have been white people who are as dedicated as I, mm-hmm. as I am to fighting inequality and who taught me about economic policy and taught me about how to make change and how to be an advocate and who mentored me. People like Miles Rappaport, who's the president of my organization, Demos, when I was hired and who predated me as president. And then my colleague, Tammy Drought, who's a child of a steel worker, very working class Midwesterner, who was my intellectual thought partner mm-hmm. throughout that work. Um, and, and I do think that that shaped me and has been an important part of why I think it's possible to mm-hmm. to build power across lines of race. Mm-hmm. I agree. I've been lucky in that, in that way. Thank you for being my friend, Andrew, because... <laughs> <laughs> Gotta try. And working with me tomorrow. <laughs> Gotta yeah. try. 
all of these stories, it feels like comes back to the the power and the hope that you draw and that certainly I draw from listening to the podcast from cross-racial friendships that then kind of blossom into activism, maybe activism that blossoms into friendship. I don't know, like what the, do you have any thought on kind yeah. of like the directionality of that? Is it the, we became friends and then we worked together or in huh. deciding that we had some sort of shared cause and shared purpose brought us closer together? You know, that's a good question. I'm trying to quickly tick through the stories in in the podcast. For for most of them, it was work, mm-hmm. a shared value mm-hmm. that brought people together, and then a real authentic relationship flowed mm-hmm. out of it, right? I'm I'm mm-hmm. thinking of, for example, in the second episode, which takes place in Florida, where Desmond Mead, who's this extraordinary civil rights leader now and was, you know, homeless and addicted and court-martialed out of the military when he was young and served time and is now the leader of the movement to restore the voting rights for people with felony convictions. Mm. And then there's a white guy who was a Republican who caught a felony because he was part of the Jack Abramoff lobbying scandal. Right. Right. Named Neil. And the two of them met up almost accidentally, and they connected because of their values around second chances, right? And they couldn't have been more different. But then the friendship and the authentic relationship came in because they were able to connect on something that really mattered to them both. You just saying that made me just jot down like the importance of even like these opportunities for dialogue. Can you talk a little bit about that and having people even come together and talk about their values and how that matters? Yeah, you know, it really does matter because, you know, part of the problem right now in the wake of the pandemic and in our digitized world is that, you know, we don't have as many spaces to connect on a human level. So often, when we do connect on a human level, we actually want to avoid those deeper conversations because the media and social media tells us those are divisive conversations. We don't want to risk not liking anybody anymore mm-hmm. <laughs> because they say the wrong thing, you know? And it's yeah, like, I, I just don't want to go there. Let's be, <laughs> let's stuff these goodie bags for the PTA, but let's not talk about anything else because I don't want to have to hate you now. No small black um, <laughs> But ultimately, you know, when something really matters to you, you dive in, right? Mm-hmm. And and that's what the stories in the podcast are all about, are fights that people have taken on because they really matter to them mm-hmm. for one reason or another. And, and of course, you know, the lesson here is that there's so much more that we have in common than what divides us. Yeah. I mean, I think about the episode in Kansas City and, and Bridget, who's mm-hmm. organizing for a uh, minimum wage, yep. right? Bridget's a white woman. She talks about once she got involved, her lack of fear. Yeah. That there was something liberating in actually, you know, getting involved that, you know, she was sort of fighting on a grand scale for collective liberation for herself and for other people in solidarity. But there was also this kind of like micro liberation mm-hmm. for herself that she felt like she didn't have this state of constant fear that she had been living in, that she was sort of liberated from that. 
Yeah, I mean, that was one of my my favorite episodes to do because Bridget and her co-conspirator, Terrence, who's a brother from Kansas City, who's also a fast food worker, you know, they're in the book and they're a very memorable pair of characters from the book, even though, you know, there's like four lines each about them. That's the thing about a book that is, as my editor once said, I think not in a complimentary way. He was like, you're trying to swallow the ocean here. You know, it's like there's a lot going on in the book to some of us. And so any one character gets at most like, you know, half a page, a page, right? Mm-hmm. But right. by going back to Kansas City and being able to sit and talk with Bridget and Terrence for hours and really try to unfurl their stories in this audio format, you know, I got to dig much deeper about the shifts in their consciousness and mm-hmm. what they used to believe and how they used to feel about being people working in poverty and how how that shifted once they began organized mm-hmm. and how exposure to each other helped them to change. And for Bridget, she really had this sort of false consciousness that it was her fault that she was still stuck in a dead-end job because she mm-hmm. was this young person with so much promise, and she ended up dropping out of school in order to take care of her mom and, you know, putting off going to college and, you know, taking a job that was an okay job 20 years ago. Little did she know that because of greedy corporations, the job would still be paying the same, you know, or less in real terms, you know, 20 years later, right? right? Mm -hmm. And that the market would be flooded with jobs like that. And so she really blamed herself. She really um, held some, some stereotyping racist views about Black people and about immigrants. And she had a sort of individualistic frame for how she got into this mess and mm-hmm. what she could do to get out of it. You know, like go back to school. Well, some astonishing share of fast food workers have college degrees or some college experience, right? Like you can't educate yourself out of a, a labor market that's designed for poverty, right? Mm-hmm. So... When she learned by showing up to an organizing meeting for the free pizza (laughs) that, (laughs) you know, there were other people just like her who were different in color and language, but had her same material circumstances and were willing to take risks in their lives for something that would change her life and her children's lives, (laughs) she felt empowered. Mm-hmm. And she felt like it's not my fault. Right. And I'm not alone. Right? Right. And that absolutely liberated her. There's definitely a thread in all the people that I met who were part of some successful, powerful cross-racial organizing of, well, this is the way life is supposed to be. You know, this is who mm-hmm. we're supposed mm-hmm. to be mm-hmm. as human mm-hmm. beings. Right? Connected, still individual, still having our own culture, but you know, our our world is expanding because of it. Um, one of the most memorable lines from the Some of Us podcast, which is a podcast series with lots of memorable lines, is from Miss Scotty Fitzgerald, who goes to a rally where, at this point, the movement against the pipeline had become a real high demonstration moment. So there were lots of people at this big rally. And it it was a pipeline that threatened her, her Black neighborhood, her family, her land. They were trying to take it by eminent domain to build the pipeline. And here's what she says. It was such a mixed crowd. It was so many colors and people there that was pushing and that was for us. Have you ever seen that before in your life, all those white people? I cried because I wouldn't have thought that anybody would care. When I looked out and saw the bouquet of people, 
And that's what God loves is a bouquet. Everything he made is diverse. That was beautiful. And I, I, I feel the same way, right? Seeing people, different people together, working together, that is beauty to me and liberation. Thank you, Miss Scotty. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of liberation, I think what I am learning about liberation is it, I'm going to be able to find b- bits and pieces of it throughout the day, maybe longer moments. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about your understanding of liberation when it comes to this work? You know, to me, liberation feels like a sense of alignment. Mm-hmm. That what I'm doing is aligned with my purpose, that I'm getting closer to figuring out and refining my definition of what my purpose is on the planet, that I'm in touch with my higher self, mm-hmm. like that the sort of channel between me and my ancestors and my higher self is sort of open and there's not a lot of static, you know. When challenges come as they do, I can get still and sort of listen mm-hmm. for what the right move is and not feel trapped and betwixt and between. Yeah, that my actions and my deeds are in line with my higher self. That yeah. that to me feels like liberation. Yeah. <laughs> I think, and I ask that because I, I think previously I believed it was more of a destination. And now I'm recognizing mm. that I can have some here <laughs> it, because of like that alignment or because of a meaningful conversation with Andrew or because of like feeling connected to folks in a way mm-hmm. that I wasn't anticipating. All of those are liberating. And, yeah. Um, but isn't that interesting, though, Val, right, how we're both talking about liberation as connection. Yeah. Which in one paradigm can be, oh, I'm I'm shackled to somebody. Right? <laughs> liberation is I'm flying free on my own. You know, <laughs> I don't need to be connected or tied to anybody, you know. <laughs> but I, I don't, I think that's a very false patriarchal Western view of liberation, that it's about the individual as opposed to feeling really connected. Yeah. I mean, that's to me that, yeah, that's, that's the promise of collective liberation, right? Like like that's why it matters for me that you are liberated. That's why we all have a stake in each other's liberation Mm -hmm. is because we can't actually be liberated on Mm -hmm. our own. And, and my connection to you is thwarted by the ways that you are oppressed. My, my ability to be in right relationship impacts me. It impacts you. Like we are all impacted. I think Mm -hmm. that's the, the collective part of liberation to me. Yeah, I like that. Final question, and we're asking all of our guests this season to talk about how their caregiving, parent schooling thing is going. So school is starting. How's it going for you all? Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. I think (laughs) the last time we talked, I was like, I hope that my son can go to this good school that is so, like, warm and lovely and rigorous and has this great Black principal and vice principal. This is the public pre-K that's in your neighborhood. Yeah. He's now on day three at that school. Very good, yeah. And we're very excited about that. And, you know, I mean, his classroom is so diverse Mm -hmm. in a really beautiful way. We had the parent orientation and I had this like totally juvenile feeling. It was like I literally you're walking into the lunchroom. Yeah. And the kids had been put in the gym to play and the parents were the ones, you know, being talked to. And I was like, ooh, there's so many cool parents in here that that I want to be friends (laughs) with. Oh, yay. (laughs) And I was like, this is so great. So hopefully here, New York City, universal pre-K, Funded by tax dollars, available to 
every parent at four years old will be his first experience of, a, of school that really challenges him. But I am profoundly grateful for universal pre-K in New York. Yeah. It's a great equalizer. It, it's really great. Awesome. Thank you for sharing. It's beautiful. You you have said many times everything we believe comes from the stories we are told. And I feel like your podcast is just such a great example of stories that need telling examples of cross-racial solidarity and the, the good that can come from them. It's what we try to do here every episode with Val and I leaning into it. And so just, yeah, really grateful for all the work that you do and particularly for the podcast and for coming on and sharing about it. Thank you. Thank, Thank you both you. so much. Thank you. So Val, what did you think? Oh man, I'm I feel super grateful that she came back and and spoke with us again, and I felt like I learned even more this next go round. And I think I want to dig into our own story and related to the question about the oppressor versus the oppressed, kind of like being the first to seek solidarity. And I'm wondering if we can kind of share with listeners how we got here. Yeah, I was thinking about that too. You know, it ties into sort of later on in the conversation we talked about. Mm-hmm. Do you join in a project together and then find the friendship or do mm. you find a friendship and then that leads you to joining the work together? And I think certainly mm-hmm. in, in our case, it was the work. Right. You know, we, we sort of started on this project of doing this podcast together that, that then led to a friendship. Yeah, which I think is, you know, just in my experience, these personal relationships are what we can count on most in any of the solidarity efforts that we undertake. And I say that because, you know, we could build something really awesome together and for some reason outside of our control, it could end. But what we would have is the relationship that you and I have built, right? And so then having the energy to build something together or something new. And I Mm. think that's a really important takeaway because if we get caught up on the thing that we create together and not the relationship that we have with one another. If something happens to like, say the product, then we can lose hope where I think the hope is always with the people. Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, I, l- I love that idea because I write it. I had had Heather B- McGee been like, "You didn't record my thing. That's it. I'm I'm blasting you on Twitter, and you guys are canceled." Right. We would still have we would still have our friendship right. to to kind of pick up the pieces from afterwards. Yeah, I th- you know, I think I think about that on the on the front end, the kind of ease with which relationships can be formed through a project, you know, through mm-hmm. working together. Maybe that is tied to values. You joined the Integrated Schools podcast. We had some sense of shared value before we started on this, but it doesn't necessarily need to start through those values, but it is in that kind of working together that you build those relationships, that you find the kind of shared humanity that you realize, because I think there's so many messages counter to this, but I I think when you actually get in a room with somebody or even just over Zoom with somebody, Mm -hmm. that we want to find relationship. We want Mm -hmm. to be in community. We want to find ways in which we are similar and find ways to connect with people. I think that's like in our nature. Mm -hmm. We spend so much time thinking about these kind of big, broad ways in which we are divided and which way are not the same. But I think there's something really powerful in being together in in space, ideally a physical space, but even just virtual space together and engaging in conversation that I think I think we are inclined to reach for connection in those spaces. I have a question. Do you think like the type of project could be something as simple as a PTA, a parent teacher organization thing, or does it have to be something that is explicitly tied to a value, right? I don't think it does. I mean, I think mm-hmm. I think it can be as simple as cleaning up the trash at school. I think it can be as simple as I think that is tied to a value though. That probably is tied to a value. Yeah. Right? 
And I think I asked that question because I was, you know, wondering, like, for the audience members who may not have the ability to engage in conversation with someone like I do with you normally, what would be the entry point? Is it enough for mm-hmm. me to show up to the PTA meeting and say, hey, I want to be a part of this for that conversation, that type of relationship and that project to start? So I don't know for sure, but I am thinking that, you know, say I do go to an um, environmental protection group, like I have signaled my values and thus people there um, might be more willing to dig into some of these things with me versus if I just show up at a school function. Yeah, I don't know. I wonder because I, I mean, I think also like what school did you show up at is 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 already stating some values. Yeah. You know? And so I think I want to encourage folks who are curious about how to how to do that, to take advantage of any opportunities that integrated schools has to bring people together. And then also not being afraid to like propose something that might bring people together. Like, I am interested in this thing for our school. Is there anyone who is willing to do this with me? And having one person say yes, I think makes a big deal. And it is the beginnings of a community. And I'm thinking about some of our callers who called in last episode who, you know, found community with other caregivers and parents who also cared about the same things in their community and, and decided to take action together. Yeah, I love that. And we'll talk about this a little more in the next episode, but I think that doesn't necessarily have to be through the traditional channels that school uses. Correct. It doesn't have to be a formal PTA event, just the idea of here is a community building activity that we are going to engage in because actually we think that strong community supporting school is really important to school right. doing a good job. Right. The other, the other piece that this makes me think of from from the conversation with Heather is is this idea that, you know, movements aren't moments. Oh, I wrote that down too. Which are, which was so powerful just to think about, you know, the the kind of the demonstration is the loud part that you see. Mm-hmm. But but you don't get to demonstration without work beforehand. You know, like Black Lives mm-hmm. Matter does not become the the movement that it is without the the years and years and years of work all the way back to Michael Brown's killing. Mm-hmm. That activism laid the groundwork for there to be something to pop up in the wake of George Floyd's murder. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's always work going on in the backgrounds to, to set that up. And then after that big moment, I think, I think to, to your point a minute ago, for movements that are sustainable, that mm-hmm. do end up being sustained, I think it is those relationships, that human connection that is sustaining that keeps things going Absolutely. after the big showy demonstration piece. Yeah. One of my favorite things that I learned recently was just the the amount of educators of color in the 30s and 40s who poured into the activists who became the civil rights activists in the 50s and 60s, right? They had teachers, they had people behind the scenes who couldn't do the work as publicly as they were able to do it. And there were lots of young people who led those movements and had conversations with their teachers about what they deserved and the rights that they wanted. And so- Generational work is happening now. And right. so we don't actually know what our investments will turn into for the people who follow us, but we have this sense that it's important enough to do. And yeah. um, I think it's because we recognize that it's not just a moment. Yeah, right. You hope that that you've done enough work so that when, when the right moment happens, there is infrastructure and, mm-hmm. and not just like actual you know, infrastructure around kind of organized people, but also mm-hmm. the seeds have been planted in terms of the way people are thinking about the topic, the way the conversation about topics is happening, such that when, you know, when the moment arises, there's something that can really stand up to to fill the role that is needed mm. in society. Mm. No, I really like that. When the moment arises. 
And Heather kind of indicated that there's a moment right now that she believes integrated schools should be actively a part of. Yeah. In terms of standing up against book bans and advocating for public schools. Yeah. And, you know, there's another part that I found so so powerful about what she's saying, that fear around CRT as a boogeyman and the, mm-hmm. the need to, to ban books, that part of that stems from the activism. To your point about, you know, educators in the 30s and 40s setting up civil rights educators, we've had a, a whole wave of black educators recently talking about the importance of, you know, culturally affirming education, the importance of creating a space where people can see themselves in the curriculum where there is an acknowledgement of past trauma inflicted mm-hmm. upon people of color. All of these things which have been happening and it is because those things are happening, not widely enough, not in enough places, but it is because that has been building that there is something that is you know, causing this sort of sense of fear, that is causing this mm-hmm. real visceral kind of pushback that is now showing itself as, you know, we need to ban books, we need to cancel any talk of race in schools. This is a time you know, something we heard again from listeners last time, this fear of what state is public education in? How are mm. people talking about it? How are people thinking about it? That there really is a moment now to step up and and try to do something about it. Yeah. You know, even though there's all this pushback that is dangerous and we should absolutely stand on talking about race and racism in schools and allowing teachers to teach critical thinking around these topics, I did leave the conversation with Heather feeling hopeful. Yeah. And I felt hopeful in a couple of different ways. I think it's easy to to experience the pushback and feel like, okay, we're not making any headway at all. Mm-hmm. But what she reminded us in that conversation is that each one of these examples, including the ones on her podcast and our example here, are really important to elevate and share with the world about how this work can look without a big moment, (laughs) right? Right. Mm -hmm. How it looks in the daily push to create a better world. And, you know, I'm thinking about all of the the work that each of the, the people that she highlighted in her podcast had to do that eventually led to them feeling some sense of success. But a lot of it was like ugly and silent or messy, right? Um, and it was just it was just work. But all of it was necessary to get to a point where they experienced some success together. And so yeah. I think these conversations do give me hope because there is a not too far history where this would have been impossible. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I mean, I love that she kind of highlights the the components that that have made that up, at least in the examples mm-hmm. in the podcast, which is, you know, a, a, a sense of self-awareness among white people and a mm-hmm. sense of, I think she you know, talked about like empathy and position taking from people of color, that there is kind of like everybody needs to come to the table, mm-hmm. that we white folk have to bring some humility and some self-awareness and resist the idea that once our racial consciousness has expanded a little bit, that we need to now fill up the room with it. Mm-hmm. Um, which is such like a tempting place to go. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that there there is kind of work for everyone to do in trying to f- create these spaces where we can have these meaningful connections. Yeah, for sure. One, one thing she, she said that is like unequivocally true and also sort of stuck out to me a little bit was you asked her like sort of who poured into her. Mm-hmm. She talked about the rich history of, of black folks being kind of hyper civically involved. Mm-hmm. And and that is unquestionably true, and mm-hmm. it is not the general story that we tell. You know, p- part of the way I think that that white supremacy replicates itself is 
telling this story, we see it in education all the time, but more broadly about civic engagement that, you know, if, Mm -hmm. quote, those people would just care more about their neighborhood or would just, you know, care more about education or whatever. There is like a story mm -hmm. of black folks who don't care about Mm. about being civically engaged. Mm. Oh, yeah. No, you're giving away white seekers right now Um, (laughs) (laughs) because that's not my experience at all. Right. Right. That's not my experience at all. I have always had the honor and pleasure of learning from Black folks who were civically involved. That was always an expectation of me and of members of my family and my community. When we first moved into this neighborhood, my neighbor across the street, Mr. John, Black older dude, introduces himself. The first thing he says to me is, are you registered to vote? (laughs) That literally was the, <laughs> welcome to the neighborhood. So happy you're here. Yeah. Are you registered to vote? Early voting is now, you know? Yep. And so I was very proud to tell him that I am a voter. Yes, and, sir. And, you know, and I am not missing an election. I'm not missing a primary, nothing. I'm, I'm there with yep. you, Mr. John. And so I think Black folks, there is the narrative that we are civically involved, that we have to be civically involved because Mm -hmm. if we are not active in our own communities, then we won't get what we deserve in our communities, right? So yeah, that's that's not the narrative that that I know at all. I need you to talk to your people about that. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely know that that is a narrative that is out there. Yeah. And then I like think about it for a second and like like I don't know, I don't know that I know any black people who are not civically involved. <laughs> like it is, it Just is, think about it, it is, for a second. <laughs> it is baked in, right? But I think there's something about that that's tied to the ways in which we, we white folk f- feel inclined or, or like the need to dehumanize mm. black people in particular and people of color in general, mm-hmm. which is there's certainly a story in white culture that is, it is good to be civically involved. It is good to participate in democracy and that that's how your voice gets yeah. heard. And I don't think anybody would would argue that black people's voices are being heard in society mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. And so the kind of only way you can square that is either, mm-hmm. you know, sort of internalizing some structural issue or tell yourself this story that black people must not care. Mm-hmm. Black people don't care mm-hmm. about their neighborhoods. The reason that you know, the the black side of town has trash in the street or, Mm. you know, the sidewalks are all busted up or whatever is not because there's been disinvestment from those communities. Mm. The reason must be that black people just don't care about their neighborhoods. Wow. Yeah, no, mm -mm. we let the record show. (laughs) Yeah, I want to be clear. I'm not not arguing that that's true. (laughs) My people in particular, black women, we show up, you know, and I think... Folks who want to believe that anti-Black narrative about Black folks not caring about their communities don't have an understanding of structural and institutional racism. And I think what you said was important when I think about it for a second. <laughs> right? Right, right. When I think about it for a second, it doesn't make sense. And so I'm hoping enough people pause for a second and say, like, let me just actually look. Let me look into this. Let me yeah. let me see. Because absolutely... Again, just speaking for Black folks, working to make sure their communities have everything they need, have done that and still meet barrier after barrier after barrier. Uh, I am confident that's communities of color everywhere. And every little like piece of success is like a big deal because they have worked for for years. Right, because nothing was handed out. I mean, which which is actually probably how you can end up with a narrative that says... 
that white people care more than black people. Because if you look around, if you believe in meritocracy, if you believe that, like, advocating for things is how you get things and you look mm. at who has the most things, mm. like, obviously, white people must care more, must mm. advocate more, mm-hmm. when really, actually, so much of that is kind of handed out to mm-hmm. to white folks with, with very little en- energy or action on why are you bringing so much heat on episode two (laughs) (laughs) and yet we remain hopeful yes yes we do remain hopeful one of the things that that leaves me feeling hopeful is thinking about what to do as we mentioned last time we're thinking this season about action steps about things we can do rather than only thinking about things we have to think about things and think about things in a new way but then we also have to change our behavior so Val coming out of coming out of this episode the conversation with Heather McGee what are you thinking about for action steps um I think one of the action steps that I'm interested in is getting more connected locally so you know I'm I'm relatively Mm -hmm. new to the state getting connected locally with organizations that align with my values so that I can continue to build these relationships and I can continue to to find opportunities to change the world with other people who are committed to that. And I imagine that like if it starts with something that I'm passionate about, say it's like my kid's school and I am getting to know someone and they're passionate about the environment and climate change and how we can do that. Like I am so excited about now doing that work with you too, right? Right. That's the action that I want to take. I'm I'm ready to dig in. You know, I'm settled, I'm ready to dig in and, and get connected to the community locally. Yeah, I think yeah, I love that. The idea of finding opportunities you know, I think particularly I've been feeling lately to to actually be in person together with people, mm-hmm. to share space, you know, in the event you can share a meal, it's so powerful. Yeah, finding just small ways to be in physical space, whether even that's just something I think about most days now is getting out of my car when I take my youngest to elementary school or when I go to pick up my oldest at middle school, getting out of the car and just, you know, standing outside with the opportunity to talk to, maybe it's just one person, maybe it's two people, to kind of, you know, nurture those little relationships because you never know which of them are going to blossom into something. And there's so much that happens that can be beautiful on a school campus and in the halls. And there are opportunities right in your kids' classes to start having these meaningful conversations and relationships. And so if we can model that for them... What a wonderful world. I'm <laughs> feeling right. it. I'm yeah. feeling it. So are we ever going to break bread? I mean, outside of me eating on the podcast and being <laughs> muted. Yes. Yes. We okay. have to find it. We have to find a time. We will find a time. Yeah. The other thing I'm thinking about is just the 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 power of stories. You know, I think one of the mm. things that the Some of Us book was so amazing because it kind of, you know, highlighted these little individual snippets of people's lives and their stories. And then the podcast is also really powerful because the medium of a podcast is really great for bringing people inside of relationships and this idea that the things we believe are because of the stories we've been told. Mm -hmm. So one action step I definitely want to encourage listeners to do is go listen to the Some of Us podcast. And if you haven't read the book, read read the book. And then think about sharing those those stories because Mm -hmm. these stories of of cross-racial solidarity are ways to give people hope, are ways to kind of push back on the constant stream of news we hear about about dysfunction, about mm. separation. Mm-hmm. And like like Heather said, you know, going out around the world and talking to people who are trying to make the country a better place is is hopeful because there is lots of that happening. Yeah. Remain curious, good people. Beautiful. Well, listeners, we want to hear from you. Let us know what you're thinking, how you're feeling. 
what action steps you're taking as you're listening to the podcast, shoot us a voice memo. That would be awesome. We'll play your actions that you're taking. We love hearing from you. Yeah, that'd be great. Find the voice memos app, record something, and email it off to podcast at integratedschools.org. You can also help us keep the podcast going, help avoid potential future issues around <laughs> recording or not. Please. <laughs> By joining our Patreon, patreon.com slash integrated schools. We'd be incredibly grateful for your support. Awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, share this podcast and all the others and the resources associated with them. Uh, we want to continue to build this community and we need your help. Yes. Well, Val, it is an honor as always to be in this with you as I try to know better and do better. Until next time. Ha, 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 ha.